0: Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Unsolved Murders, Cults Uncovered, and Mysteries Uncovered. 911 emergency! My shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Each week on Morbidology, I uncover a new true crime case using investigative research combined with source audio. I just snatched it from her. My side took it. And it's like I just hit her with it. Morbidology is a victim focused podcast that mostly covers cases that aren't widely documented in mainstream media. I also like to take an in depth look at any systemic failures which had a part to play in the crime. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home in gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology across all podcast platforms. You're listening to DNA ID brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, and Scene of the Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 38, Michelle Louise Wyatt. It was 1980. Sometime after 5 p.m. on Thursday, October 9th, a young woman named Rita headed home. She had stayed at her boyfriend's place the night before and gone straight to work. Now, she was returning to the two-story condo she shared with her roommate, Michelle, at 10586 Carrigan Court in Santee, 25 minutes outside San Diego, California. Rita parked at the curb outside the condo and got out of her car. She paused, taken aback as she looked at the shared condo. All the curtains were closed and the outside lights were on. This was immediately concerning. Michelle, her roommate, was an early riser and would never have left the drapes drawn and the outside lights on in the daytime. As Rita later told the San Diego Reader, quote, As I walked up to the front door, I remember thinking, this is weird because the mail was still in the mailbox and the newspaper was on the ground outside the door. Rita went to put her key into the front door, but was startled to realize that it was unlocked. Tentatively, she opened the door. There, sprawled on the living room floor, naked, strangled, and staring blankly at the ceiling, was Michelle. Rita couldn't get out of the condo fast enough. She dropped the mail, the paper, and her own stuff, and ran to a neighbor's where she insisted that he go take a look inside her condo. The neighbor did and took in the scene that had so frightened Rita. They called 911 from the neighbor's phone. Deputies from the San Diego County Sheriff's Department arrived and did what they were trained to do. They checked the woman lying on the floor and verified that she was deceased. Her body was already cold. From the position of her body in state of undress, she was naked with her bathrobe thrown open. They suspected that she had been the victim of a violent sexual assault. So they secured the scene, conducting a cursory check to ensure there were no suspects or dangerous elements on site. Then they called in the Homicide Division. Homicide detectives were soon on the scene. The lights from the police cars and ambulance lit up the condo grounds in the night. Neighbors started gathering around outside, watching and whispering about what could have happened in their own backyard. Rita's next phone call was to Louise Wyatt, Michelle's mom. She said to her, Mrs. Wyatt, you need to come over to the condo straight away. Something is drastically wrong. Louise ran to a neighbor's to get a ride. She was afraid of driving herself because fear was coursing through her. Police cars, red and blue lights, uniformed officers, and detectives in suits confirmed her worst fears. Her, the San Diego reader, quoting Louise, a sheriff's deputy started yelling at me to stop, so I just sat on the grass. I asked him, is my daughter dead? And he said, yes. Louise sat there for the next four hours, moving only to go inside a neighbor's condo when the medics removed Michelle's body on a gurney under a navy blue sheet from the condo. Louise did not want to see that. Ray Wyatt received a call at work from a sheriff's deputy telling him to come to his daughter's condo. He knew from that minute that this was going to be the worst day of his life. At the condo, Deputy Coroner Jack Larkey formally identified the victim whose name, of course, Rita had provided. She was Michelle Louise Wyatt, age 20. After crime scene personnel were done documenting the scene with the body in place, Michelle was removed to the county morgue, where a pathologist did an autopsy the following morning. His findings revealed that Michelle had died from asphyxiation caused by ligature strangulation. She had several head wounds that had bled, including several blows to the left side of her head, as well as a bruise to her left eye, and she had been raped. Seminal fluid was detected on swabs from Michelle's body. Both pre and post mortem sexual activity was suspected. The condition of Michelle's corpse, as well as some information from two neighbors, placed the time of death at around 1 or 2 a.m. Let's talk a little bit about Michelle. Some of this information came from Thomas K. Arnold's terrific articles on the case in the San Diego Reader. Michelle was born on February 9, 1960, to parents Raymond and Louise. Her mom gave birth while her husband Ray was on the way back home from an overseas tour of duty with the Navy. Because of Ray's military service, the family moved around quite a bit before settling in San Carlos, where Michelle and her younger brother, Ray Jr., or Ray J., as the family called him, grew up. Ray became a press foreman for the Union Tribune Publishing Company after he retired from the Navy. Michelle went through the public school system in San Carlos and graduated from Patrick Henry High School in 1978. She was the kind of girl everyone liked and some girls secretly envied. She was gorgeous and friendly and approachable. She was described by the Journal-Tribune quoting a neighbor as bright and bubbly and beautiful. She had lots of friends who described her as a fun-loving, carefree, and cheery girl. Michelle worked as a food clerk and cashier at a nearby Safeway grocery store in Mission Village, where, after her death, her co-workers raved about her and how customers loved her. Most of us just can't believe it happened, they said. Michelle initially enrolled in classes at Grossmont College, but then moved over to Mesa College, where she was studying both oceanography and communications, trying to decide what to do with her life. She was also considering art school. Michelle was very active, enjoying scuba diving, roller skating, running, tap dancing, and even acrobatics. Her dad, Ray, described her as vibrant, a go-getter, a beauty inside and out. Michelle also loved kids and gave dirt cheap dance lessons and organ lessons to the kids in her neighborhood. She always eagerly babysat her brother, Ray J., 10 years her junior, and hosted him at her condo for sleepovers. Michelle loved to read, scary novels, oceanography and scuba diving texts, and a series of Snoopy pocketbooks. Her condo had books on shelves and in stacks. Oddly, despite being so fit and active, Michelle had chronically low blood pressure, and was prone to fainting spells. Also, her father later lamented that she loved to spend money, not thinking through her financial responsibilities before purchasing something she wanted. After her death, he told the San Diego reader, quote, "'You know, I used to kid my daughter for going out and spending 250 bucks on a radio when her car never had gas in it. But by God, I've got to give her credit. She spent money like it was going out of style. Now I find myself looking at something and saying, "'Why in the hell shouldn't I buy this?' it might be my turn tomorrow. Michelle's best friend Suzanne heard about Michelle's death from her own mother, who had seen the story on the evening news. She told investigators no one would have wanted to hurt Michelle. That was a refrain investigators heard over and over again. Rita, Michelle's roommate, had started living with Michelle at the condo after answering Michelle's ad in the paper for a roommate. She was five years older than Michelle, and while they were friends, Rita took on a bit of a big sister role with 20-year-old Michelle. It sounds like the two were friendly, but they weren't besties, and they moved in completely different circles. Michelle had met her newish boyfriend, Patrick, known as Pat, four months earlier at the Safeway where she worked. He lived nearby and was also a student at Mesa College. They had a mutual attraction, but had not started formally dating until July. Since then, they spent a lot of time together and were very attached. Michelle even admitted to her mom that Pat might be the one. And a dazed Pat told investigators that he had been in love with Michelle and they had discussed the idea of getting married just days before her death. Michelle's funeral was attended by hundreds of mourners. She was buried in Mount Hope Cemetery. Her headstone says, If the sun refused to shine, I'd still be loving you. Her mom told the San Diego reader, Quote, it took a while to convince myself that my daughter is really dead. In fact, I still don't have myself fully convinced. You know, it's awfully hard after all these years. I go out to the cemetery every week. I know my daughter's there. There's a headstone that reads Michelle Louise Wyatt, but still, how do I accept the fact that she's gone? Detectives Craig Henderson and Gary Fisher were two of the five initial detectives assigned to the Wyatt case. The number was higher than the norm because the case was an immediate media sensation and it demanded the attention of several investigators. Michelle was found lying on the living room floor. She was lying face up with her pink bathrobe untied and splayed open. She was naked underneath. She had a towel tied around her neck that investigators believed had been taken from an open drawer in the kitchen. The killer had ripped the towel to make it long enough to choke Michelle with but she also had a cord wrapped tightly around her throat over the towel that was determined to be a phone cord from within the condo. The cord had been taken from the wall, and the little plastic square plug end ripped off and thrown on the floor. The cord end was then wrapped around a three-inch long wooden block from a game that lay on the end table next to the phone. This was similar to a Jenga piece. The cord ran through her hair, over her right ear, and around her throat. With the cord wrapped around the block, the killer could twist the block and tighten the crude garage until Michelle expired. This shows a level of calculation of intent. This was not a loss of control or a moment of passion. This was intentional murder. Detective Brian Patterson told me that he believes Michelle was stunned or even knocked out by blows to the head, and then the towel was used to try to strangle her. When that didn't provide ample leverage. The killer grabbed the cord and the block from a game on the phone table, and that did the trick. After Michelle's body was removed, wheeled out on a covered gurney before horrified neighbors, crime scene techs set about photographing the condo, dusting for prints, and gathering anything that looked like it could be evidence. Photos of the crime scene show the living room with two chairs, a couch covered with an Afghan and newspapers, a potted plant a decorative statue lamp, and closed drapes. Michelle's purse had been dumped out with its contents like Q-tips, lipstick, an eyelash curler, and hand lotion spilled out onto the brown carpet. A bag containing a nail kit was also spilled out. The push-button phone was off its cradle with both pieces lying on the carpet as well. A scrunch piece of newspaper lay on the floor as well along with a towel and a paperback book. Although these things were in disarray, other things told a tale of a normal evening at home. On a glass bar cart sat a fancy stereo system, and next to it a nail file, some hairpins, and a book of matches. But the bar cart had been pushed away from the wall so the killer could access the phone cord. He had not come equipped with a ligature, but fashioned one from what was on hand. The weirdest piece of evidence, in my opinion, was Michelle's handbag. The killer had deliberately dumped out its contents on the rug and gone through them, presumably to steal anything of value, and then he stuffed the purse into the downstairs powder room toilet, where it sat waiting for investigators to puzzle over. They came to believe he had put the purse into the commode, hoping to destroy any fingerprint evidence. The photos of the powder room where the purse was found show that either Michelle or Rita used it regularly to get ready for their day. Two red hair dryers were still plugged in. Makeup and other female toilet accoutrements were on the counter. The glass front medicine cabinet stood open, so investigators dusted it for prints and were rewarded with a fresh, latent thumbprint. Meanwhile, detectives started questioning Rita. They asked her if anything was out of place, whether anything was missing, what the girls' routines were, and so on. She relayed to them an important piece of information that she had found the door unlocked. Michelle, she said, would never have left it that way investigators surmised from the scene that michelle had been killed by a single attacker and they began to think that michelle herself was the target that the goal was not to rob the place but to get to her sheriff's homicide lieutenant thomas siever said the contents of michelle's purse were strewn about but it did not appear to be a robbery or burglary of the residents but then michelle's family said she had no enemies who would kill this happy-go-lucky young woman They started to put together the timeline of Michelle's last known activities. On Wednesday, October 8th, Michelle went to two of her three classes at Mesa, but blew off the last one to go running with Pat. That evening, she went to her regular tap dance lesson. This was at the Sue Hamilton School of Dance on El Cajon Boulevard. Michelle had been taking tap dancing lessons there three nights a week since she was seven years old. She must have been Fred Astaire level by this point. After the class, Michelle drove back to her condo and met Pat there. Rita was gone at her own boyfriend's place. Pat told the investigators that he and Michelle had shot some pool on a pool table set up in the condo's garage. Michelle beat him in all three head-to-head games. Then around nine, they went back inside the condo, accessing it through the sliding glass doors that led to the living room. No, Pat couldn't remember whether they had locked the sliders behind them, but in fact, police found that the sliders were secured by a rod put in place to prevent the doors from being opened. The couple watched TV in the condo for a while after that. Pat left around 12.45 or 12.50 a.m., and he personally locked the front door behind him with a key Michelle had recently given him. And that was the last time he saw Michelle. Investigators noted no signs of forced entry on the doors or windows to the condo. They knew that Michelle was safety conscious and that Pat had said he locked the door when he left. They began to form a theory that her killer had watched Pat leave and then knocked on the door soon thereafter. When Michelle opened it, her killer forced his way in and overpowered her. The door had a peephole. Whom would Michelle have opened the door for at that hour? It was possible that Michelle opened the door without looking through the peephole, laughing, believing that it was Pat having forgotten something. Of course, if Pat had forgotten something, he probably would have used his key to get back in. Michelle's family said she would never have opened the door in the middle of the night to a stranger. This question, how the offender got inside the condo, would remain unanswered. Hi, DNA ID listeners. I'd like to talk to you about the show's newest sponsor, Feels. Feels is a premium CBD company that delivers directly to your doorstep. Now, for those of you who don't know what CBD does, Feels CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. All you do is put a few drops of it under your tongue and you start to feel better within minutes. It is a misconception about CBD that there is a hangover or addiction associated with it. That is not the case. CBD has been proven to greatly reduce anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. I personally can attest to a positive experience with CBD. I was experiencing muscle pain and fatigue from a runner's injury, and I started taking CBD. Within a two-week period, my muscle inflammation significantly decreased, and I was able to get back out there. CBD also has helped me personally in the sleeping department, something that becomes harder as we age. The great thing about Feels is that they make the process completely personal. They offer a free CBD hotline where you can speak to someone to help you figure out what is the best product for you and what the best dosage is for you personally. The membership to the Feels CBD program is hassle-free and is guaranteed to help you feel your best month after month or you get your money back. Sign up for Feels and it's shipped directly to your doorstep in just a few days' time. Join the Feels community to get Feels delivered to your door every month. You'll save money on every order and you can always pause or cancel your membership. One of the cool things about Feels is that they offer Feels New CBD-infused mints so you can get a clear-headed feeling and fresh breath on the go. Joining the Feels monthly membership makes self-care really, really easy. If you become a member, you'll save money on every order. And again, you can pause or cancel every time. Start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com DNA and get this, you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's feels.com DNA, F-E-A a l s slash dna become a member and get 50 percent automatically taken off your first order with free shipping since we're talking about points of entry let's get a sense of the place where michelle was killed the condo complex where she and rita lived comprised over 100 units this was not a high-rise building but a warren of identical two-story white stucco condos built in rows separated by strips of asphalt and grass Michelle and Rita's condo was situated halfway down the second condo row from the street, facing a miniature playground that was popular with the complex's youngsters. Each condo was designated with its own numerical address. Michelle's was 10586. Inside, the condos were all the same. Front door and hallway, living room, dining room, kitchen and bath on the first floor, three bedrooms and additional baths on the second floor. A set of sliding glass doors from the living room led out to a small backyard, where neighbors would often see Michelle's miniature collies Bambi and Shep outside playing. Michelle's dad Ray had bought the condo in June 1979 as an investment property, and he let the girls live there at a steep discount to what it actually cost him. Michelle had been living there about nine months when she was killed. Rita had moved in just a few months before the murder. A canvas of the neighbors took days. After all, the complex where the girls lived had a hundred plus units. That's a lot of neighbors. They talked to Brian, a next door neighbor, and he told the Tribune, quote, Michelle had everything going for her. She was beautiful, but not a snob. She was the kind of girl others would envy. She was very friendly and outgoing. Investigators also found another male neighbor, a guy named Teddy, who lived across Caddy Corner from Michelle and Rita. Teddy and Michelle were friends. He liked her and said he would have dated her if she were amenable, but so far, they were just friends. They sometimes hung out and played pool. Teddy had talked to Michelle on the day before she died. She told him that her boyfriend, Pat, was coming over that night, and indeed, he saw them playing pool in the garage, and later, when he went to bed, he noticed the garage door was closed, but Pat's vehicle was still there. The next morning, he looked out the window, and Pat's car was gone. Investigators located some witnesses who helped narrow down the timeline further. Two neighbors admitted hearing Michelle's dogs barking like crazy and some screams. The screams stopped quickly, and both neighbors dismissed the sounds and went back to sleep without following up. One of these neighbors, a woman, noted that her clock indicated this was just after 1 a.m. There was little doubt that what they were hearing was Michelle fighting for her life, a fight that she lost. I could not find any information about what the condition of the dogs was when Rita found Michelle's body. Presumably, Shep and Bambi had been barking their heads off at the attack, but then what? Did the killer just let them bark? Did they try to bite him? Or did he put them in the back room or the backyard? No one seems to recall. I, for one, hope Shep and Bambi bit the guy good. Over the next weeks and months, investigators questioned scores of people, Michelle's co-workers, friends, schoolmates, acquaintances, and so on. They asked about her personal life, dug into her finances, and looked up her school and traffic records. But investigators quickly realized that they had their work cut out for them. Michelle didn't have any secrets, it seemed. And she didn't have any jealous exes or spurned suitors. She didn't seem to have any enemies at all. According to the San Diego Reader article, one of the sheriff's homicide detectives investigating the case remarked, quote, It's really kind of strange. We've talked to dozens of people who knew her, and not one word was said against her. Of course, homicide investigations nearly always turn up some connection, some relationship that leads to the killer. The vast majority of cases are personal, with a motive rooted in emotion. Here, they could uncover nothing of the sort. They did discover some things that seemed possibly relevant to the investigation. Rita had filed a police report just two weeks earlier, saying that she had been attacked by a man when she returned to the condo complex around 3 a.m. She told police, I went to put my key in the door, and all of a sudden this man appeared behind me out of the blue. The man grabbed at her, grasping a piece of her clothing, but she screamed and swore at him, and he ran off. Rita was very concerned after this attack, and she considered moving out. She counseled Michelle to be careful and to consider arming herself when she was coming and going at night. This from the San Diego reader, quote, Michelle, however, would simply smile at the suggestion saying, who would want to hurt me? And when Rita told Michelle she was thinking about moving out because of the attack, Michelle's reaction bordered on the incredulous. She couldn't understand my fear, said Rita. The attack didn't seem to affect her. She was always bubbly and easygoing and never believed that there were people out there who could hurt someone for no reason. Detectives at the time didn't seem to think that there was a connection between this attempt on Rita and what happened to Michelle. But I will say that to this day, we still do not know for sure. It has to be said that Pat, Michelle's boyfriend, was considered a suspect for a time. After all, there was nothing to rule him out in those days before DNA. He admitted to having been the last person to see Michelle. The screams heard by neighbors happened very shortly after he said he left for the night. Teddy, the neighbor, verified that Pat's car was parked outside Michelle's condo that night but was gone the next morning. Pat said he had locked the door behind him but it had been found unlocked. And as you all know, most murders like this one are committed by someone close to the victim. Investigators would have been remiss if they hadn't looked at him. Pat seemed to feel very guilty, but investigators felt that that could have gone either way. Pat said he was agonized over his decision to go home that night he left Michelle's place and slept at his own home because he had to get up and go to work the next day. But investigators wondered whether it could have been guilt over what he had done. But Louise and Suzanne didn't feel that Pat was capable of killing Michelle. Michelle had loved him and said he was the one, and they felt instinctively that the feeling was mutual. Investigators at the time noted that Pat was very cooperative, willingly gave blood and hair samples, and submitted to a polygraph, which he passed. Their guts told them that he didn't do it, and years later, DNA would show that. Then they found a guy named Mike, a co-worker of Michelle's at the Safeway. They learned from Michelle's friends that Mike had been insistent that Michelle date him. Michelle was not interested, but Mike persisted almost to the point of stalking Michelle. Police learned that he had started following her and told others that they were dating. Michelle was creeped out by him and told her friends about Mike. She also told Pat and Pat told police that Mike had confronted him and told him he was jealous of him and that he wanted to date Michelle. Needless to say, investigators wanted to sit down with Mike, but suspiciously, he would not talk to them. Investigators called his house and talked to his mom, who seemed to convince him to come in for a police interview. When he arrived, he seemed very nervous. He admitted to them that he'd driven all the way out to Santee to Michelle's condo. It's not clear how he knew where she lived, other than perhaps he was following her when she got off work. Yeah, I cruised by, cruised through the alley. She was gone, I guess, he said. Why did you cruise by, asked the detective. Just to see her, he said. Mike denied any involvement in what happened to Michelle, but he didn't have much of an alibi for the night of the murder. He said he had been at home at his dad's house. Then he said he was on a date with a girl out at the beach, and he admitted to getting home very late at night. When detectives pressed him, he abruptly ended the interview and demanded his attorney. Mike became the prime suspect. The detectives all felt that it was him and focused on nailing him for the crime. But they failed and perhaps missed some opportunities to pursue other investigative avenues as a result of this tunnel vision. Detective Patterson told me that when he picked up the case decades later and read through the case file, Mike was on the top of his list of suspicious characters. He looked really good on paper as Michelle's killer. When he learned that Mike had been ruled out by DNA, he was shocked. By December, three of the five detectives on the case had been reassigned, and the Sheriff's Department admitted to being at what they called a stalemate in the investigation. It didn't get any better. By February 1981, homicide detectives for the Sheriff's Department had spent hundreds of hours on the case. One investigator told the San Diego Evening Tribune, quote, We have talked to all sorts of people. We have checked similar cases. We've worked on all sorts of possible links, but we have nothing for certain. Meanwhile, Louise and Ray were frustrated at what they saw as the lack of progress in the case and with what they perceived as a refusal by investigators to share the details with the grieving parents. They alleged that they were never even interviewed by the San Diego Sheriff's Department Homicide Unit, which, if true, would be a significant oversight. Ray said that no one ever talked to them or asked them about Michelle's life, the things in her condo, many of which her parents had supplied, and nothing. It's almost as if the detectives didn't want to disturb the Wyatts, but in the Wyatts' opinion, the investigation was irrevocably harmed by this failure. They should have sat us down at the table and picked our brains, but they've never done that, Ray told the San Diego reader. Another reality was that within the next 18 months, detectives Craig Henderson and Fisher picked up seven additional cases more recent murders that naturally took priority. Ray and Louise set up a $7,000 reward fund in December 1980, hoping the money would motivate someone to come forward. They also printed 10,000 flyers and then 8,000 more, and with the help of volunteers and friends, posted them all over their daughter's neighborhood. They tried to get the flyers front and center in every place they knew Michelle frequented, laundromats and dance studios and shopping centers she favored. Louise was eager to post the flyers at the Safeway where her daughter worked, believing that someone may have seen someone paying extra attention to her, or noted something unusual. She told the Union Tribune, quote, It isn't right that the murderer should go free and maybe kill some other trusting innocent person like Michelle who loved everyone and never believed anyone would try to hurt her. I can't visualize why someone would hurt her. Her mother emphasized that just a week earlier, Michelle had literally saved the lives of two men whom she had helped get out of a car before it burst into flame. No one else at the scene had helped. At the time, Louise said she told her daughter, Michelle, you did a good thing. Someday someone will help you. But she noted, quote, on the night she died, there were people who heard screams and Michelle's two little dogs barking, but they didn't help. One neighbor actually told me she was afraid to get involved. My daughter, who always went out of her way to help others, remained alone in her time of need. The Wyatts were so frustrated that they began their own investigation of sorts. They resorted to a psychic who helped them to think outside the box and came up with a list of names of men with whom Michelle had had some contact, gave the names to the homicide detectives, and heard nothing. The Tribune Journal did a piece about Michelle's parents on the first anniversary of her death. Her mom, Louise, devotedly visited her daughter's gravesite weekly, trimming the grass by hand and making sure she had a bouquet or flowering plant on her grave. Louise had started carrying a small handgun with her when she went to the cemetery, as she had been knocked down and mugged there once, and another older woman was attacked and raped as she was visiting her loved one's grave. This happened at a cemetery. What is wrong with people? Louise told the paper that she looked daily at the large framed photo of Michelle as a high school senior. She said, quote, I don't want to accept the fact that she's gone because she's still there on that wall. I've still got the pictures and the memories. And whoever that idiot is, he can't take that away from me. But she acknowledged, quote, it's a hell of a way to live. You go to bed with it, you wake up with it. She said she would not rest until she found her daughter's killer. A year and a half after Michelle's murder, the San Diego Reader did an interview with the head of the San Diego County Sheriff's Department Homicide Division. Sergeant Bill Baxter. He described the Wyatt case as a true whodunit, one with no strong suspects and an investigation that had taken up well over 1,000 man hours. He admitted that at this point, the Wyatt case was sort of on the back burner. The longer it takes to solve a murder case, the harder it becomes, he said. Little did he know that three and a half decades more would pass before the case was closed. Detective Craig Henderson later said that he became convinced that the case would never be solved. Years passed. In October 1996, Michelle's case was reopened by veteran San Diego homicide detective Ed Stevens and his partner Tim Carroll. This was a case that Stevens was determined to see through to resolution, so much so that he continued to puzzle over it post-retirement. The first step they took was to submit evidence in the case for new testing. Swabs from Michelle's autopsy were submitted to Intermountain Forensic Laboratories on October 11, 1996. Results were obtained on March 14, 1997. The DNA profile of an unidentified male was on the external vaginal swabs. The fledgling CODIS database contained no information on this profile. The investigators set about contacting all the names in the case file in their exhaustive re-examination of the case file and all the evidence. This from the San Diego Reader article on the case. In 1996, detectives re-interviewed Wyatt's former neighbors, trapped down acquaintances, and even secured about 35 genetic samples from a long list of possible suspects, including a dead man. With each sample, they have been able to rule out some former tenants on Carrigan Court off Magnolia Avenue, where Wyatt lived with a roommate. The dead guy was Gary L. Halkowitz of Arroyo Grande, a cousin of Michelle's. It's unclear what his personal relationship was to Michelle, but he was a close relative, and his family reported that he was behaving oddly around the time Michelle was killed. Police knew that she would have opened her door for him. Gary died in December 1981 in a motorcycle crash in Nipomo. He was 37. He had been raised in Santa Maria, served in the Army in the 60s, and was injured while stationed in Germany. He was discharged in 1969. He had always remained on the suspect list, but since he died the year after Michelle, he hadn't been ruled out until now. Investigators were able to obtain a sample from his autopsy and compare it to the evidence in the case. It wasn't him. A San Diego County Sheriff's Department press release says that all in all, as a result of the 1996 reinvestigation, quote, nearly 90 potential suspects were methodically contacted and interviewed. Many of these potential suspects provided biological samples for examination against the previously collected evidence. These samples were sent for examination utilizing forensic techniques and comparison current for the day. In June 2000, the items of evidence were re-examined utilizing more sensitive methods. Through these tests, evidence was found that supported the belief that there were two separate DNA profiles on and in Michelle. The sexual assault kit revealed one of the DNA profiles was Michelle's boyfriend, and the other profile came from an unidentified male subject. We've seen this before, for example, in the Virginia Freeman case. But this information was very helpful because it allowed investigators to eliminate Michelle's boyfriend, Pat, as a suspect once and for all. Basically, without getting too graphic, Detective Patterson told me that there was different male DNA in the internal vaginal swabs from Michelle indicating earlier intercourse, and the external vaginal swabs that indicated some post-mortem sexual activity. The internal DNA was matched to Pat, which made sense. The other DNA belonged to the unknown male who was believed to have raped and killed Michelle. So Pat was ruled out, and some other suspects were ruled out too, including the detective's favorite suspect, Michelle's weird coworker Mike. He was eliminated by DNA testing on August thirtieth, 2000. So now, it was 2,020 years after the crime. Investigators seemed to have gotten even farther from solving it, eliminating through scientific means the only suspects they had. Detective Stevens came to believe that Michelle was not a random victim. Instead, he came to the conclusion that she was being watched, stalked, if you will, by someone fixated on her. And it was someone police did not have in the case file. Rita, Michelle's roommate, spoke to the San Diego reader for their expose on this case. She was very perceptive. She said, quote, Everyone seems to be sure it's someone who knew her, but I think the murderer is someone who didn't know her. If anybody really knew her, he couldn't have done what he did. But I'm the only one who feels that way. I think it was someone who lived in the area and had been keeping an eye on us. You know, two girls living alone. I have a suspicion it might have been the guy who attacked me in front of the condo that night. He was a little guy, and I felt I made him angry, swearing at him. I'm a big girl, and I'm strong, but... While Michelle would have had the guts to defend herself, she was not a muscular woman by any means, and I don't see how she could have protected herself. But I do have inner feelings that they're going to catch whoever did this someday. This guy is alive, and he's going to mess up. He's going to mess up soon, and they're going to get him. I'm pretty sure it was someone who wanted her body, someone who knew her and wasn't getting what he wanted from her, she says, matter-of-factly. Well, Rita was both right and wrong. Meanwhile, Michelle's parents were stuck in limbo. It took them 17 years to bring themselves to sell Michelle's car, which had been sitting in their driveway under a tarp that whole time. It's always been on my mind, Louise told the San Diego Union-Tribune in 1998. Michelle's case went dormant for another 19 years. In 2019, Detective Brian Patterson picked up the file after the deputy DA asked him, did they ever solve that case? And he recalled it because he's from Santee. He read the file over and realized he knew some of the people interviewed back then, including Michelle's caddy corner neighbor, Teddy. And he saw that there was DNA in evidence and that it would be the only way to solve this nearly 40-year-old crime. In March of 2020, the California Department of Justice approved a familial DNA search for the Michelle Wyatt case, whereby the state's offender DNA database would be searched for any kinship relations of the suspect. None were found. Whoever this guy was... His close relatives had not been arrested in California for any violent felonies. The San Diego Sheriff's Department Homicide Unit's cold case team had had good luck with forensic genealogy, having cracked the Teresa Selecki case in 2020, as well as two other homicides and two Jane Doe identifications. They decided that given there was a viable DNA sample still in evidence, they would give it a whirl in Michelle's case in September 2020. Senior crime and intelligence analyst Jeffrey VanderSip worked closely with Detective Patterson. They provided a DNA sample to Gene by Gene for preparation of a SNP profile suitable for forensic genealogy. Then they started the process, uploading the profile to Family Tree DNA and GedMatch, and starting to build trees. The whole thing took about nine months. The initial matches found in the open-source databases to their offender profile were in the range of 100 centimorgans likely in the third cousin range. But there was one larger match that provided an excellent starting point. It was over 400 centimorgans. Patterson and Vanderset dug into the genealogy, but they struggled to build family trees because, for one thing, they were having a hard time finding out any more about the family connections of this high match, who had a very common name. They were hesitant to just jump in with both feet and contact her directly, tipping her off to what they were up to because at this level of relationship, 400 plus centimorgans, she could very well have been in touch with the suspect himself. Not ready to show their hand, the investigators worked on some trees relating to the lower matches, the 100 plus centimorgan range ones, but the third cousin level is still pretty remote, so eventually they decided to contact their high match, likely a second cousin of the suspect. She was from Texas, living in New Mexico, and they called her up. To their immense relief, the 400-plus match woman was exceedingly cooperative, and so was her mother, who shared just under 700 centimorgans in common with the suspect. They were getting closer. But then they hit a brick wall. Even though they knew that this family, whom I'm not naming pursuant to their request to remain anonymous, had members closely related to the killer, the investigators could not connect them. This seemed to be a whole separate family from all the other matches." They were going to have to ask people to upload their profiles to Ancestry or engage in actual DNA testing of people who might be connected to try to narrow down the tree branches, get a sense of the interfamiliar relationships, and hopefully figure out how these people were related to the suspect. Detective Patterson said this family agreed to help the investigators even though they were hoping they were on the wrong track. They decided to do the right thing to assist in the investigation, but like most people, hoped that there was not a killer lurking in the branches of their family tree. This DNA testing led them to a senior female relative in this family who shared over 1,000 centimorgans with the killer. This is basically a first cousin. YSTR testing confirmed that the killer was part of this family along his paternal line, but they still didn't have enough information, so investigators took the next step. They asked this woman, the high match, to test using Ancestry and provide them with the names of matches she received on that database. Ancestry is the largest DNA database, but it is not searchable by law enforcement for DNA information. The family connections gleaned from this step, provided to the investigators by this woman, led to her father and his two male siblings, any one of whom it seemed might be the killer. Further DNA testing indicated that one of her uncles was either the killer or a close relative of the killer. I'm calling him Rusty, which isn't his real name, but was his nickname in life. Rusty had no documented children, and he was dead. He passed away in Missouri in 1996. Was he the killer? Upon digging into Rusty's life, investigators discovered that it was quite an interesting one. His relatives called him a bit of a scoundrel, and he was described as shifty and unreliable. The investigators learned that he was somewhat itinerant, that he had several marriages— and that while he had no children with any of these wives, he had several affairs with married women, and at least two, but potentially more, offspring from these illicit relationships. Just what every genealogist wants to hear. But Rusty's relatives and friends did have some important information that would end up providing the missing link. Rusty was a carpenter who had worked on Hollywood films, and he had been employed on a particular movie set. This was the epic Hollywood movie How the West Was Won*. And in 1961, it had filmed in numerous locations throughout the state of Arizona. The movie eventually won three Academy Awards, but that's not what Vandersipp and Patterson found intriguing. A family branch from the suspect's 100-plus Centimorgan matches had roots in Arizona. Interviews with members of this family revealed that in early 1961, one of the women in the family had been an extra on the set of a Hollywood movie. You guessed it, How the West was won. Her name was Betty Ruth White. And in December 1961, she gave birth to a son. She and her husband, James Franklin Hogan, raised the boy as their child. James was listed as the boy's father on his birth certificate, but genealogy indicated that Rusty was his real father. The child's name was John Patrick Hogan. So now they knew that this guy, Rusty, could have been the killer, or his misattributed parentage son, John Patrick Hogan, could have been the killer. But wait, Rusty had another son who was raised as the child of another man, the result of yet another illicit liaison of Rusty's. Rusty had several wives during his life, but only had kids with women he never married. This second son was raised in Texas and was retired law enforcement. The only way to resolve all this was to test living relatives of all these people. John Patrick Hogan had three half-sisters. He also had left behind an ex-wife and a daughter. Voluntary DNA samples from both of them, in essence a paternity test, showed that John Patrick Hogan's DNA matched that of the killer of Michelle Wyatt. After his death, an autopsy was performed and a blood card collected. It was still on file, and it confirmed the investigators' findings. They finally knew who had killed Michelle. On August 4, 2021, the San Diego County Sheriff's Department announced that they had a suspect in the decades-old murder of Michelle Louise Wyatt. After collecting nearly 90 DNA samples from potential suspects or people connected to the investigation, they determined that John Patrick Hogan was the source of the previously untraced seminal fluid. The connection, quote, revealed substantial and convincing evidence that Hogan sexually assaulted and murdered Michelle. Lieutenant Thomas Seaver said, He's the one that committed the sexual assault and murder. He would be arrested if he was alive. Siever credited new DNA technology for the case closure. Michelle's murder would likely have gone unsolved if not for the use of investigative genetic genealogy, he said. Interestingly, John Patrick Hogan's three half-sisters had already guessed that he might have had a different father an aunt of theirs had looked at the family's genealogy and noted the discrepancy between what Hogan's genetic connection to the Hogan family should have been and what it actually was. So, of course, investigators had not closed the Wyatt case based on forensic genealogy alone. They dug into John Patrick Hogan's life to see what circumstantial evidence they could find to bolster the findings that he was Michelle's killer. And they found plenty. Hogan was born in Arizona on December 29, 1961, to mother Betty Ruth White and her husband, James Franklin Hogan. His real father was Rusty. Betty was messing around outside the marriage. She and her husband, James, were living in Arizona, where filming of an epic Hollywood movie, How the West Was Won, was going on. And somehow, she met Rusty, who in 1961 was a movie set builder in the film industry and was on location in Arizona. Baby John, the result of this liaison, was born in 1961. He would grow to be very tall, about six foot three or six foot four, just like his father, Rusty. Not surprisingly, given Betty's infidelity, the Hogan marriage fell apart and she remarried. It seems Betty was a bit of a mess. Her relatives told investigators that she was a Rolling Stone who never really settled down. And Jeff Vandersip found an article about her arrest for shooting her husband. The article from the Arizona Republic on July 7, 1982, says that Betty Ruth Baker, age 52, was arrested after shooting her husband, Richard Baker, in the face. This was not a subtle incident. The couple got into an altercation at Zane Gray's Tavern in Queen Creek, and she shot him point-blank in front of a bunch of witnesses. Believe it or not, Richard lived. We couldn't figure out what the eventual disposition of this case was, but it shows that Betty certainly was a violent hothead something her son clearly inherited. Anyway, well before this time, when Hogan was just finished up with the 8th grade in the 70s, Betty and her husband and the kids moved to where else but Santee, California. And they lived, again, you guessed it, in the condo complex where Michelle would later be killed. Yes, John Patrick Hogan actually lived in the same condo complex, not at the time of Michelle's murder, but just a little while beforehand. Investigators were eager to see if they could place Hogan in the complex. They noted that the original case files from 1980 indicated that the contemporary investigators were never able to actually pin down who the owners were of two of the units in the condo complex at the time of the murder. And one of these units was the one in which John Patrick Hogan and his family resided. They only knew he lived there because Hogan's ex-wife was able to provide Detective Patterson with a photo of her husband's ID bracelet, trendy in the 70s, that actually had his name and exact address engraved on it. So they had concrete proof that he had lived in the condo complex and knew which unit number. Detective Patterson contacted the current residents of this unit, who had lived there for decades at the time, and they just could not recall when they had actually purchased it or who lived there before them. And Hogan's sister couldn't recall exactly when the family moved out either. Anyway, while living in Santee, Hogan attended Santana High School, and his sisters say he was in the troubled, drug-oriented crowd. What's absolutely crazy is that this was the same high school that Detective Patterson attended, and the two were there for overlapping time periods. Detective Patterson still has a high school yearbook with photos of Hogan during his freshman and sophomore year. He pulled Hogan's transcripts, and they show he was not exactly a stellar student. Needless to say, the two did not hang out in the same social circles. One went on to become a detective, and the other went on to become a violent rapist and killer. The next bit of Hogan's life is a little fuzzy, but his family moved back to Arizona. Hogan's San Diego-area girlfriend got pregnant, and the two married. This was the woman who now, as his ex-wife and father of Hogan's daughter, cooperated with investigators and gave her DNA. But when she was pregnant as a teen, her family didn't like her young husband, so the young couple didn't actually live together until Hogan enlisted in the Air Force in 1979 and was stationed in New Mexico. Note the timing on all this, okay? Hogan and his wife and child moved to another state in 79. His wife soon bailed and returned to California, living in the Santee area about a mile from the Kerrigan Court condo complex, but Hogan remained in New Mexico. U.S. Air Force records showed that he was stationed at an Air Force base there when Michelle Wyatt was killed in Santee. This was a major problem. Genealogy can point to someone as a potential suspect, but if he is shown not to be in the location where the crime occurred at the crucial time, then he didn't do it. Detective Patterson pulled Hogan's USAF records, and lo and behold, Hogan had been granted leave during the time period October 1st to October 10th, 1980. Michelle was killed on the 9th. Could Hogan have returned to Santee during his time off, maybe to visit his wife and child, and killed Michelle during that time? They needed to see if they could connect Hogan to Michelle somehow. Of course, investigators knew that he had formerly lived in the complex and was intimately familiar with it. But that was before Michelle lived there. Did he have any connection to the complex that continued in 1980? Yes, he did. Remember the guy Teddy I mentioned earlier, the one who lived catty-corner to Michelle and was friendly with her? Well, Teddy, too, went to Santana High School, and his friend was John Patrick Hogan. Hogan would on occasion hang out with Teddy at his condo right across from Michelle's. It was possible, probable, actually, that Hogan had seen Michelle, and they could have even been introduced by Teddy. Detective Patterson talked to Teddy, whom he remembered from their days at Santana High. Teddy told detectives in 1980 that he had had a few friends over at his place the night Michelle was killed. Now, in 2021, he could not recall Hogan being one of them, but it seems likely that he was. So wait a minute, why had Hogan's name never come up in the original investigation? Well, he didn't live in the complex at the time of the murder, so his name would not have appeared in a list of residents. As an occasional guest of a resident, whose permanent address was another state when the crime occurred, there was no reason for his name to have come up. But when Detective Patterson told Teddy that he believed that his buddy Hogan could be responsible for Michelle's murder, Teddy said that of all my friends, he's the one who could have done that, but no one ever asked me about him. Teddy told Detective Patterson that Hogan used drugs and broke into houses and stole stuff. His California arrest records showed mostly low-level property and drug offenses. Hogan spent the majority of his life in Arizona, but when Detective Patterson went to retrieve Hogan's Arizona criminal records, he was disappointed to learn they had been destroyed as a matter of routine. But an NCIC search showed that he had what Detective Patterson called a crazy amount of police contacts in Arizona over the years. And they learned from talking to people who knew Hogan that he, at one point, had lived in the home of a wealthy older guy in an exclusive area of San Diego, in an arrangement that involved the exchange of sexual favors. A prostitution arrest on Hogan's record backed this up. Not that he was soliciting prostitutes, but he was one. There was also some indication of other criminal sexual behavior, but none of Hogan's known crimes involved violent behavior, and nothing had ever been entered into CODIS about his criminal activities. So, what else do we know about Hogan? He served in the Air Force from 1979 to 1981 and eventually settled in Phoenix. He spent time in California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Idaho, according to reports. After his relationship with the mother of his child disintegrated, he married a second time and fathered another child. It's unclear what he did for a living, and he didn't live long. He died at the age of 42 of a methamphetamine overdose outside of Marie Callender's in Phoenix. But that's not what's remarkable. The date of his death was October 9th, 2004. The exact same date that he killed Michelle Wyatt in 1980 at the age of just 18. When I asked him whether he believes Hogan knew the significance of that date, October 9th, Detective Patterson told me, quote, I think he either celebrated the day or it bothered him. Jeff vandersup said that in each case their unit has solved using forensic genealogy where the suspect is deceased, They all came to a bad end. Both Patterson and Bandership told me that when they learned Hogan's identity, they were surprised at how young he was. They assumed, given the brazenness of the crime and the seeming confidence of the killer, that they were looking for someone older. This reminds me a little bit of Stephen Downs, who was a freshman in college when he killed Sophie Sergi in a college dorm bathroom. It's surprising that men this green were able to pull off these murders undetected. But again, luck was probably a big part of it. In the end, Hogan's family was instrumental in helping to finger him as the killer of Michelle Wyatt. Detective Patterson said that despite the DNA evidence, Hogan's ex-wife was in denial about his involvement. She suggested that Hogan and Michelle had consensual sex and then someone else came along and killed her. It's understandable for people to not want to acknowledge the flaws in their loved ones. At least she decided to assist the investigators Even though the answers were the ones she might not want to hear. Unfortunately, as we've seen in so many cases, Hogan's being dead by the time investigators were able to identify him as the killer means that we have unanswered questions that will probably remain that way. For example, was Hogan the man who attacked Rita, Michelle's roommate, on their doorstep just before Michelle was killed? Detective Patterson isn't sure. The attack went down on the same night of the week, either one or two weeks before Michelle's murder, which is a strange coincidence, but Rita described her attacker as shorter than her, and Hogan was at least six foot three. We also don't know where Hogan was or what he was doing for the time he was on leave. He had 10 days off scheduled, but the time period he was in California could have been longer if his leave was bookended with regular days off. Could he have been using the time to watch Michelle and observe her patterns? Hogan had checked camping equipment out from his unit when he left New Mexico and was sanctioned when he returned for failing to return the items or returning them damaged. Where and why was he camping? Why had he dumped Michelle's purse in the toilet? Was that his thumbprint on her bathroom medicine cabinet? Detectives were not able to match the print to any associated with Hogan. Police believe that Hogan was watching Michelle, that he knew where she lived, and possibly even knew her personally. Detective Patterson confirmed that he believes the two were acquainted. They had mutual friends in the condo complex, and she might have opened the door if she saw through the peephole that it was a young guy she recognized from hanging with friends across the street. Hogan was watching her condo, observed Pat leaving and locking the door, and he knocked. Michelle opened it. She could have thought it was Pat coming back and yanked the door open, or she could have seen through the peephole that it was Hogan at the door and she knew him and was comfortable opening it. He attacked her as soon as she did so, and it all went down right there inside the door in the living room. Hogan was very young, probably impulsive and possibly high on something. He struggled to strangle Michelle and had to grab the phone cord after the towel failed to be effective. My main question for Detective Patterson was, how did Hogan know that Rita, the roommate, was not home on the night he killed Michelle? Detective Patterson said he could have been watching and known Rita was out. Perhaps he was familiar with her car or the lights were off in her room all night. Or it's possible he didn't even know about Rita, who had only lived there for a few months, and he got extremely lucky when she was absent from the condo that night. As for the why... Why Hogan targeted and killed Michelle, as opposed to any one of the scores of other women in the complex, we will never know. He could have been fixated on her, or he could have seen her as an easy target. Now that Hogan has been identified as a violent killer, investigators are interested in any other such crimes he may have committed. They have developed a VICAP bulletin for circulation to other jurisdictions it's believed Hogan may have frequented. So far, nothing has turned up. When it came time to sit down with the Wyatts, Pat joined them, Michelle's boyfriend. When they informed Michelle's loved ones that they had discovered who had taken their daughter and girlfriend from them and that he was dead, the investigators said that the Wyatts and Pat were disappointed. The parents were relieved to have answers, but bitter that the killer of their only daughter had eluded justice. The investigators showed Ray and Louise a photo of a very young Hogan. I can't imagine seeing his picture, a nice-looking young man. It's mind-boggling, Ray said. Louise told the San Diego reader, quote, when they came to the house and they told me they had found him, but he was dead from an overdose. My thought was, oh, shit, that made me mad. It was just about 41 years later that they found him. I wish he was alive. I'd go after him. I'd go after him. Oh, boy. People that say, hey, I got closure. I'm happy for them because I can't get that closure. It's just it's horrible. And the thing that got me is that he killed himself on the same day as he killed Michelle. After 41 years, Michelle Wyatt's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Thank you so much to the San Diego County Sheriff's Department investigators, Detective Patterson and Jeff Bandersip, for working with me on this case. And thank you so much to everyone who has signed up to be a patron of DNA ID. Your contributions are invaluable. If you'd like to sign up, go to www.patreon.com and just search for DNA ID. Even just a $5 a month donation will get you ad-free episodes. And if you'd like a t-shirt, hoodie, mug, or tote bearing the show's logo and catchphrase, head over to www.customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast, all one word, no colon, to order. And now I'd like to play a clip for you of a podcast I think you'll really like called reverie true crime reverie the state of being pleasantly lost in one's thoughts a daydream but what if those daydreams turn to nightmares reverie true crime shines a light on the dark tragedies that have happened and are continuing to happen all throughout the world We interview and work with families to bring awareness to forms of injustice. We explore the depths of cases from around the world to include missing persons, mysteries, and more. Reverie True Crime is found wherever you're listening to this podcast. Remember, you don't have to live in fear, but stay aware of your surroundings. Stay safe and take care. Don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a regular supporter of the show, you can join Patreon to become a DNA ID patron and receive episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com and search for DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit customizedgirl.com s slash DNA ID podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email us at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter and at DNA ID podcast on Facebook. Use the Spreaker app. If you'd like to comment on episodes of DNA ID, and I'll be able to see your comments and reply to them. DNA ID is written, researched and hosted by me, Jessica Bettencourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Bettencourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.